It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. It's, you know, lack of access to education. It's lack of safe drinking water. It's lack of legal rights, lack of awareness about one's civic rights, land holding challenges. Whatever like makes me craziest is where I want to go because I think that's where I can be most effective. That's actress and activist Ashley Judd on stage at the 2015 Aspen Ideas Festival. She may be best known for her roles on the silver screen, starring in movies like High Crimes, Divergent, and Insurgent. But the 47-year-old is also deeply involved in humanitarian efforts. As an ambassador for Population Services International, or PSI, she's visited slums, brothels, schools, and clinics in the developing world. She's met with diplomats and religious and political leaders to fight problems like gender-based violence. In the Aspen Talk, she describes herself as a social justice feminist. She explains how personal experience with abuse and rape drove her to fight for women's rights around the world. Later in the show, you'll hear from other women leaders in a talk from the 2014 festival called Our Future, The Best Thinking About the Transformative Power of Women and Girls, featuring Huffington Post Editor-in-Chief Ariana Huffington, former Congresswoman Jane Harman, co-founder of the Malala Fund, Shiza Shahid, and others. But first, Ashley Judd. The heavy discussion starts on a light note, with Judd telling moderator and NPR global health correspondent Jason Bobian about her roots in eastern Kentucky. She compares the Rocky Mountains in Colorado to the geography of her youth. The audience right away notices Judd's bare feet. Here she is explaining her lack of footwear. Uh, I generally do not wear shoes. I'm very challenged in cities. Uh, where footwear is, if not required, suggested, because I might pick up Pepsi or something like that, which someone on a street in New York City actually had to tell me once. Um, so it feels good. And I just love being with people who are um, connecting their heads and their hearts, the most difficult, I think, 18 inches I certainly ever travel. I want to go back to when you first started to get involved in humanitarian work. I'm wondering if there was, was there sort of one moment, I know that you know early on you thought about going into the Peace Corps and then ended up in a interior. different jungle. <laughs> in a different jungle in Hollywood. And, you know, you got into that career and were, you were incredibly successful. Was there a moment, though, when you switched over to, to starting to, to focus more on international issues and, and really dedicating more of your time to that? I, I appreciate the, the, the question, Jason. And what really stood out to me was the human and humanitarian. And it's, you know, I know that anyway, y'all are here to see Shug, my dog, and not me. And she's right there in the second row. Um, and, and before I go any further, I just kind of want to be myself, if that's okay. I mean, yeah. I would be myself and hopefully whatever I say, because I'm very well suited for the role. But when I was reminding myself that this is called a conversation with, and it's under dignity and equality, I decided that I wanted to visit with y'all in the way that I visit with anyone. And that means I'm going to pray. And if you are spiritually fit and you don't need prayer, take a little nap. Um, maybe integrate some of the experiences that you've had earlier at the festival, or you can just plain old leave if it's offensive to you. And the reason I do it is because, you know, I want to come sometimes from my head. I want to make sure you know that I wrote that paper that won a special award at Harvard Law School, right? But the most important thing I can do is to come from my heart. You know, I'm a social justice feminist. I work on equality issues around the world. What I'm really here to do is to love, period. That's what I do. I love. And PSI has given me an amazing ability. 
to love people around the world and to meet them where they are at, which is exactly what I needed as a child. And so I think that vulnerability is so much harder than trying to be smart, you know? So um, what I typically do is I take a moment of silence. Um, I know an ecumenical prayer that seems to work well for me. If you happen to know it, you're free to say it with me. If you don't have a God of your understanding, you can borrow mine. She is awesome. (laughs) And uh, with that, so I also have a yoga teacher here, and she would say, put both feet on the floor. (laughs) All right, both feet on the floor. Oh, and it's the serenity prayer, if you happen to know it. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And that's what social justice is all about. But that's often a difficult one. Like, what can we change? What, what, you know, there's a billion people out there living in extreme poverty. Does it ever overwhelm you, the extent of the needs out there in the world? And how do you navigate, okay, I'm going to focus on this. I'm not going to focus on this. You know, how do you, how do you manage choosing what it is you have the power to change? Well, that's also one of the things I like to discuss with other providers. So I think it's abusive to point out a problem without also highlighting a solution. And so I was much more overwhelmed when I started before I found some kind of an emotional and I'll say the word spiritual container that worked for me in order to be self-sustaining and self-supporting in an acknowledged, whatever, difficult work. And so when you were saying a billion people living in extreme poverty, I was immediately the United Nations Population Fund, my favorite. Read their added up document if you haven't yet. Last year, there were 54 million unintended pregnancies. More of those unintended pregnancies ended in unsafe abortion than in live births. However, also last year, PSI averted over 4 million unintended pregnancies, particularly amongst poor women. Long-lasting reversible contraceptives, meeting the unmet family planning needs of girls and women around the world with choices that are suitable for them culturally, for their particular context, for their reproductive and sexual needs at that time. So yes, overwhelm solution. You know, it's that flowing grace of, wow, this in this moment feels like it might kill me, and today I'm here for Fura Justine. Don't know... I've been thinking about her. I met her at a forcibly displaced persons camp in eastern Congo, and I can see her. I can feel her. I can feel not only her skin, but the texture of her ragged pink polyester dress. And the Bhagavad Gita says, you know, don't be anxious about the fruit of my work. My, I'm not in the results department. PSI is fortunately, you know, measuring, being obsessive about data, showing our donors, including individuals, our disability-adjusted life years, which were 54 million last year. But I'm just supposed to show up and do the next good, right, honest thing. You know, constantly check my motives, do what's in front of me to do, and then have that healthy and loving detachment. Well, one thing I was struck by in your your memoir, um, All All That Is Bitter and Sweet, um, was you recount going into the DRC and meeting women there, meeting rape survivors, and so, yeah, I'm getting that picture. I'm seeing it. You know, Hollywood star comes, do that. And then what was really impressive to me was then you recount how you went 
to President Kagame in Rwanda across the border. In the Great Lakes region, these militias that are causing those, those mass rapes and the DRC, they go back and forth. Um, and I was really impressed by, you know, okay, so this is, you're taking it to another level, it felt like, with that. Um, is that what you try to do with, with the trips that you take and with the work that you're doing? I believe we all need a good listening to. For some reason, people want to share their stories with me. And when you're talking about the armed militias who ravage eastern Congo, most of the women with whom I sat in this one corrugated um, cardboard box hut, and it had a stamp on it, said that made in the USA. You know, I'm sitting there with my back sweating against this American flag. You know, I was the first person, according to her, that she had told that she was actually raped by the Congolese and not by FDLR. So they entrust me with these sacred narratives, and at my own peril, I ignore these, right? And so because of the Enough Project and the great John Prendergast, because of PSI, because of Women for Women International, because of the International Center for Research on Girls and Women, these doors are opened, you know? And like I sent him a policy briefing, and the man read it. How awesome is that? And one of the women with whom I sat, she conceived in rape, and the name of her daughter is Naomi, which is my mother's name. And, and on that same thing, I thought that Nick Kristoff's introduction... You're making also, me look so no, good. No, no, but I think that, you know, it is the big question. What is the proper role of someone who has become famous for working in the entertainment industry? What is that person's role, and what is the best that they can bring to these issues? And I thought that Kristoff summed it up well, so I'm going to just quote from him. He says, she uses her fame to focus attention on issues of vital importance to all of us while giving voice to the voiceless around the world. But tell us a bit more about how your name recognition does open doors. In I hate this part of the conversation. No, on, Can we on. change the subject? Come on, no. no, my stomach churned. You've said like that, that Hollywood thing like three times now. <laughs> I don't know. I don't care. I'm completely agnostic. Let's move on. <laughs> it's none of my business what other people okay. think of me. I do it because I have to, and good people have given me the opportunity to. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit more about PSI. Maybe not everybody knows PSI. Right, Why the best you? NGO you've never heard of. So it was founded in 73 as a family planning um, agency, and we measure our health impact the way that for-profit businesses measure their profits. And so it's very rigorous. You know, we, ha we have family planning. We distributed 80 million long-lasting insecticide-treated nets last year. Maternal mortality. You know, I've been thinking a lot about maternal mortality this conference. One of the things that I don't think, think we say often enough, yes, the loss of a woman's life is tragic. To die while giving birth is obscene. Maternal mortality creates orphans. So it is in our best interests to prevent it, right? Safe drinking water, you know, clean and safe home delivery kits. It's a good NGO, and I'm grateful to Kate Roberts for recruiting me in this letter to which I responded with a single-spaced feminist manifesto. Because <laughs> how do you do due diligence on a $450 million a year NGO? And she said, well, come to the field, see what it's like. And my first day, literally, I was in the child brothels in Phnom Penh. Do you think that there's one issue in 2015 that is like the big issue for you um, in, in this coming year? I think it's gender-based violence, and I think that mental health is the next frontier. I see that gender-based violence underscores all of 
our challenges, including access to health, which is the essential building block of all sustainability. I mean, I see these problems along a spectrum, right? So I end up in that brothel, or I end up in that camp, or I'm at a crash, as they would say, in South Africa, and it's, you know, lack of access to education. It's lack of safe drinking water. It's lack of legal rights, lack of awareness about one's civic rights, land-holding challenges. And whatever I'm, whatever like makes me craziest is where I want to go because I think that's where I can be most effective. And I see the gender violence that underscores all of that. I was thinking about this woman I met in Nairobi and she worked in a formal brick and mortar brothel. Her dad contracted HIV. He gave it to her mom. When both of them died, her brothers pushed them off the land because she didn't have legal rights. She had no information about sex education and how her body worked. She got pregnant by a boy she considered to be her boyfriend. When he found out about the pregnancy, he dumped her. She ends up pregnant in a brothel trying to feed herself. And then she has the baby and she's breastfeeding and still being exploited for sex. And then she, you know, so I start with the gender-based violence of that, which shows up in legal systems and healthcare systems and interpersonal relations. Can you tell I've got some energy around? Yeah, I can see. I can see some energy. And I, and I, you know, I am one of those people. The first time I was molested, I was in the second grade. I was incested one summer by a close family friend, and I'm a survivor of three rapes, you know. And thank God I had access to resources. I was 37 years old before that was extended to me, which is astonishing in this country. You know, here I am. I mean, I led campus-wide walks out of class when I was at the University of Kentucky as an undergrad. I'm not new to social justice. I'm not new to the idea of equality. But I didn't get that help for myself until another woman in recovery, who was also a survivor of GBV, reached out and said, there's help for someone like you, too. <laughs> Do you think your personal experience with that affects the way you have empathy for people in the brothels in Phnom Penh or in Nairobi or in the DRC? Do you, do you feel like you have a connection with some of these women um, that you might not have if you hadn't had that background? I do, and I, I want to say a couple of things about that. One is everyone's experience is unique, and the day in the life of a child is very different from a day in the life of an adult. And I may have experienced something as hurtful that my sister didn't growing up in the same house. And it's important to understand the set point or the emotional temperature of you will, of the individual, and not compare those experiences. You know, I can't necessarily compare, and I wouldn't compare despair, my experience with, you know, the woman in Madagascar who's being exploited for sex under a plastic tent that she and other exploited women saved their quarters for to be able to buy collectively while her husband's standing three feet away holding their latest newborn. Like, can I compare my experience to that? Not necessarily, but it's the feelings. It's the neurological, the neuroanatomical imprint of trauma on the brain. It's the constraint of our full human expression and potential that gives the mutual understanding. I mean, I see women in brothels in India, and they're developing self-harm addictions just like our kids here. You know, a friend will say to me, I don't know what to do. My daughter's cutting, and I'm like, oh my God, if it's on her inner thighs, that's a sign of sex abuse. So, yes, and by the way, the dark past becomes the greatest asset when it is empowered in that solution. So I used to have a sad story to tell, and I didn't have another story to tell because I hadn't gotten my own help yet. And now by the grace of, you know, what I consider to be this power greater than myself and, and people who give away what they have so freely been given, it becomes the greatest asset. What do you think 
people in the United States can do to support women or to help women get out of these types of situations? Show up for your own life. Show up for your own life. Strong female-to-female -female alliances. So I'll give an example from, from yesterday. Um, I was greeted by someone who held national office and is now very closely affiliated with the, with the work I do internationally and a very good person and talked extensively about my appearance and really went on and on and on about it. And, uh, uh, and so at the end of the evening, I said something to one of their um, colleagues. And the colleague said, oh, I say that to them all the time. And I said, does a straight woman? And they said, no. And I said, well, I will. So I had the, I had the, the cur I have to risk their displeasure. I have to be willing to risk their displeasure to do that. And so I said, not, not if, but when I make mistakes or I step on your toes, you have my permission to let me know. It's important to me to get that kind of feedback. And I'm going to assume that's reciprocal. And what you were saying to me about my appearance and my body is totally inappropriate. When you go on those trips, is it emotionally overwhelming for you? How, how you, does it energize you? What, what's the effect on you of being out there in the field? I love it so much. Yeah. I love it. It's all I want to do. And I remember, you know, I, 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 there, is, there is such a thing as re-entry, right? It's tough. Um, and the first time I came home from Rwanda and Congo, actually, I was flat on my back for three weeks. There was this one tree. I walked around the corner of my home, and I saw this one tree, and it took my breath away because of the deforestation and you know the difficulty with um, the stress on the environment. And I finally went to my doctor, and he's a really sweet guy. He said, there's nothing wrong with you except for reverse culture shock. And he said, I would suggest some grief work, and I would suggest some trauma work. So I went to see a woman who does EMDR, and all I did was weep. And, she, and I was like, am I doing it right? Because I wasn't doing the EMDR. And she said, honey, you are doing it great. <laughs> and it does get easier. you know. But I remember taking a shower in one of those lounges at the O'Hare airport. And the guy who scored me, he was like, be careful. The towel rack is heated. It might Like the greatest threat to my bodily integrity today is a heated towel rack. <laughs> And the breakdown and the breakthrough. When you say, does it stress me? I listen to the people in the hotel room next to me hear me cry. But yeah, you know, and, and having that power greater than myself is what works. You know, finding an intimate, personal relationship with something sweeter, sweeter, um, is what restores me to sanity and gets me going again. You know, the hardest thing I've ever done is, is walk out of an orphanage. No, I, you know, I was based in Johannesburg for four years, and um, my wife and I started volunteering at an orphanage there. And yeah, it was uh, that was in between 2002 and 2006. And those rooms, I remember we used to go, and all they wanted from the volunteers who came in was to hold the babies and change diapers. Absolutely. And all those children wanted to, they just wanted to be held. Yeah. And um, it was so hard to leave. It was so hard to walk out of it. You know, so we talk about the brain science of skin-to-skin -skin contact. Have you held someone today? Have you been held? I love to be held, <laughs> you know? It's a fundamental part of my staying able to show up and do the work. Well, thank you for coming and sharing with us today. It's been great. Thank you, Jason.
That's actress and humanitarian Ashley Judd on stage in Aspen in 2015. One year earlier, 10 women leaders delivered their ideas on how to improve the lives of women and girls. The talk, called Our Future, The Best Thinking About the Transformative Power of Women and Girls, was part of the 2014 Aspen Ideas Festival. CEO of the Thomson Reuters Foundation, Monique Villa, kicked off the presentation. So my big idea, did you know that millions of children are invisible? As we speak now, there are 230 million girls and boys under the age of five whose birth has not been registered. If your birth, if your birth is not registered, you don't exist for the law. 60% of these 230 million children live in Asia, most of the rest in Africa. So imagine just now, if your children were denied access to school or access to healthcare, if they could not prove how old they are and who are their parents, and if you could not prove that you are their parents. So the lack of ID makes these children, the majority of them, of course, are girls, uh, vulnerable and exposed to all sorts of evil. Among this evil, child labor, child marriage, child trafficking. We must take action. But how can you force 400 and, and something million parents to register their children when they are born? And sometimes these parents don't even know it is possible to register their children. And sometimes they don't even know that by registering their children, they would give them basic rights. I've been thinking about it, and I'm not the only one. Many around the world have been thinking about that to find a solution. We never found the solution because it's very per country. So I came with a big idea because let's try to put in the same room for one hour some of the biggest brains of Silicon Valley. And I was thinking of that after listening the other day here to um, uh, Brian Chesky of Airbnb. And he was brilliant on shared economy, etc. Uh, and I was thinking, if you put him and you put the guy who created Uber and the one who created Dropbox and many other who are, who, who, whose popular company have transformed our life, put them in a room, five of them, four or five of them in a room for one hour and tell them come with solution about this issue. It would be very interesting to see what they find out and what they come up with. That's my big idea. My name is Sally Blount, and I am the dean of the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. And I'm going to start with a story. A few years ago, my daughter Haley, after she got accepted into college, decided that she wanted to take a gap year. And she proceeded to research and craft a very impressive 12-month itinerary that was going to take her to three projects in three different countries. And as she was presenting this final plan to me, I suddenly realized that my 18-year-old daughter was proposing to make her way around the world on her own 
literally. And I flinched. And I told her, you know, I'm not quite so sure I can back up this plan. And to my amazement, my strong-willed daughter didn't lash out at that moment to defend it. She stopped, and she turned to me and said, but mom, this is what the person I want to become would do. So as you might imagine, Haley has taught me a lot of lessons. Perhaps most importantly from this moment, she made me realize that we have a responsibility to both encourage and support young women to be deliberate in dreaming about the people they want to become. Women now make up more than half of the people entering the top universities in the United States, but still only a small fraction of CEOs, board directors, and government leaders. And at Kellogg, we've identified three critical pivot points where we're losing women on the way to the C-suite. The launch, the child-rearing years, and the transition to senior leadership positions. And today, I'm going to focus on the launch, that critical first job after college, because I've seen a lot of troubling statistics recently from Northwestern and Harvard that show that in their first year out of college, women from these top schools are up to 50% less likely than their male peers to enter the most competitive business tracks, like investment banking and management consulting. And when I look back on my own career, I now realize how important my own first job was at BCG. It set me on the trajectory that has actually landed me as the first, and so far only, female dean of a top-ranked business school. At BCG, I was imprinted in the ways of business, I developed critical problem-solving skills, and I do still know how to write a killer PowerPoint deck. <laughs> I would argue that if we want our best and brightest young women to become great leaders, we have to convince more of them that their first job has to be in business. And they have to go for those big business jobs, no matter what career they want to pursue. Business is the dominant social institution of our age. And if you don't understand business, you won't be an effective leader in any sector. I'd argue that the first job is not the time to focus on comfort, balance, or even mission. That can and should come, but later. The first job is the time in their life for these women when they need to gain credentials, take risks, travel, and land an, as big and bold a business opportunity as they can find. So three years ago, when Haley, who really does want to save the world, announced after college that she was planning to go into management consulting in Mexico City, <laughs> I checked the clench in my stomach. And I listened in awe as she went on to explain that she needed to understand how business works in emerging economies, how it creates jobs and wealth, and can lift people out of poverty. I can't wait to see the woman that she will become. Thank you. So I'm Lori Gottlieb, and I am a contributing editor for The Atlantic and a psychotherapist and the author of Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Goodenough, which is not about settling. <laughs> so 
I had a friend who wanted a new job, and she thought she should be promoted and that she should have more responsibility and that her boss was holding her back. So she applied to job after job and kept getting rejected for an entire year. So one day, thinking that I was being a good friend, I said that she should apply for some lower-level jobs because she didn't have the skills for these other jobs, and that was why she kept not getting hired. And she didn't speak to me for months. And I realized that I had made a horrible mistake. I had gone off the female empowerment script. According to the code of female empowerment, I should have joined the chorus of our other friends who told her that she was right, that her boss didn't appreciate her talent, and that she should absolutely go after these other jobs that she deserved. And when she was turned down for another position, I was supposed to say the empowering thing about how it was their loss and they were nuts to have hired somebody else. But I made the fatal error of telling the truth. Men don't do this. They don't pull this crap with each other. They just say it like it is because that's what true friends do. So here's my big idea for women. We need to stop being such liars. We lie to each other all the time, every day, in ways big and small, and it doesn't serve us or help us get what we want. We've become yes women in the most dangerous sense. Thinking that we're being supportive, we blindly cheer each other on, but how can we offer good counsel if we aren't being honest? Case in point. A colleague had been having a hard time dating, and then a male friend said to her, you should date less good-looking guys. Now, <laughs> as harsh as that sounds, this woman did just that, and the next person she went out with, she fell in love with and married. And then later, she said it was so refreshing after her female friends had led her in the wrong direction, saying that these other guys were commitment-phobic or they were intimidated by her success or they were secretly gay, when everybody knew that was not the case. <laughs> but my colleague also admitted that if a female friend had given this advice, she would have rejected both the advice and the friend. In fact, she would have gone to the others to complain, and they all would have done the yes woman thing of reassuring her that the honest friend was no friend at all. Oh, and she wouldn't have met her husband. And my other friend, the one who wanted the job, she eventually did get her dream job, but only after she took a couple of lower level jobs to hone her skills, and only after wasting nearly three years applying for the wrong positions. So, my hope for women in the coming decade is that we recast female empowerment away from these kind of you-go-girl white lies to a much greater form of strength that comes from the ability to take in a healthy dose of reality so that we can make the necessary changes to live more fulfilling lives. Instead of a pack of well-meaning enablers, what we women really need is other women brave enough to tell us the truth. Very good. So I'm Jane Harmon, and I'd love to say hello to the transformative men in this audience. Yeah. <laughs> I am a mother of four, a grandmother of four, a recovering politician having served nine terms in the United States Congress and survived, <laughs> and now president and CEO of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., the first woman who, the first president who happens to be a woman. Um, I have a big, uh, uh, a big idea and a big insight. My big idea is something we are doing at the Wilson Institute, which is to run a project called the Women in Public Service Project with a goal of 50 by 50. 
50% women in decision-making public service jobs worldwide by 2050. The origin of this uh, project was in the State Department when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and she, working with the seven sister women's colleges in the United States, you probably all know which they are, there are only five left, alas, I went to one, Smith, uh, formed this thing together and it is based on a training model where 50 women from all over the world go to institutes, which are now all over the world, and learn uh, very practical skills to be in the public service business, elected or appointed. Uh, this model is not going to get to scale by 2050. Any business school dean could tell you this. So we're now transforming it to a model where we do online learning and we are figuring out with the best and brightest, many of whom came to the Aspen uh, Ideas Festival, how to make this work in as many countries as want to adopt it. We'll get there, 50 by 50, and that's a good start. My big insight is that as women, we always feel guilty. That's why I gave my credentials as mother, grandmother, et cetera, et cetera. Well, live with it. You're yeah. never gonna get over your guilt. If you are passionate about something, pursue your passion. That doesn't mean you can't come home for dinner, you can't go to the school play, uh, and you can't apologize occasionally to your loving and inconvenienced husband. You have to do all those things too. But pursue your passion and live with your guilt. My name is Sherilyn Eiffel, and I'm the president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And my big idea is a very simple one. You probably already think you're doing it. And my idea is that you and me and all of us need to stop imposing stereotypes on girls. This year is the 60th anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But so few of us realize the extraordinary role that girls played in bringing these civil rights gains to bear. It was a girl named Barbara Moten, who was 16 years old, who created, started, and managed to execute a walkout at her high school in Virginia in 1952 because of the lack of resources that her school had, no desks, no gym, etc. She embarrassed the adults into challenging the system, which became one of the first cases that later became the four cases involved in Brown versus Board of Education. We should remember Linda Brown, the young girl who had to walk 40 minutes across a railroad track past the white school to take a bus to another school because of segregation. And Linda Brown's father, seeing her courage walking to school every day, decided to allow that family at great personal risk to be plaintiffs in Brown versus Board of Education. Or even more recently, it was LaShonda Davis, who finally spoke out about the sexual harassment that she was suffering at the hands of a nine-year-old boy in her school in Monroeville, Georgia, which resulted in the case that held that you can bring sexual harassment claims under Title IX if a school allows a sexually harassing, pervasive environment to exist at their school. But what we see happening increasingly, particularly for African-American girls, 
is that they're being told to shut up and sit down and pull down their skirts and not speak up. We see this in the out-of-suspension statistics that are skyrocketing for African-American girls. Wisconsin has the highest rate of out-of-school suspensions for African-American girls. 21% of all African-American students, girl students, were suspended out of school in Wisconsin in one year. In one year. Why are they suspended? For being disruptive, for being loud, for being disrespectful. What about seven-year-old Tiana Parker, who was sent home from her school in Oklahoma for wearing her hair like mine in dreadlocks? She was told that her hairstyle was unacceptable. This is happening to girls all over this country, particularly African-American girls who do not conform to the stereotype of what we are telling them girls should be. And when we do this, when we tell them to shut up, when we put them out of school, when we send them home from the prom for being inappropriately dressed, when we tell them that their hairstyle is unacceptable, we are silencing the future Barbara Motons and Linda Browns and LaShonda Davises. So trust me, you're doing it. Stop doing it. Stop imposing stereotypes on African-American girls. Girls, African-American girls, are loud, disruptive, confused, courageous, scared, frightened. They're girls, like every other girl. Let's see what kind of women they can become. Good evening, my name is Joanna Lipper. I'm a filmmaker and a lecturer at Harvard University where I teach using film for social change. I recently directed and produced a documentary film called The Supreme Price, which is screening here at the Aspen Ideas Festival tomorrow night as the closing event of the festival. The film is about women's leadership in the pro-democracy movement in Nigeria and their continued fight against corruption a culture of impunity, and entrenched patriarchal structures. My big idea is the use of films by and about women to illuminate for women what Ralph Waldo Emerson called the attainable but unattained self. This idea involves using film to help mold and in many cases transform ego ideals that have been shaped by social and emotional violence and by internal and external pressures for women to conform with what society and overtly and covertly patriarchal cultures both value and expect. The medium of film has the power to portray women as complex, multifaceted pioneers who are pushing up against boundaries confronting adversity head on, making choices that are controversial and even unpopular, and charting new territory. The visceral experience of sharing a cinematic journey and a perspective of a woman who makes a bold, innovative choice and who guards her integrity and stands up for what she believes in can make that woman into an unconventional exemplar and an innovative role model for other women. Here are a few examples from around the world of this process of transformation that can occur through the cinematic medium. A study conducted in Brazil looked at the impact of television on fertility in Brazil, where soap operas portray small families. Seeing women on screen in these soap operas playing characters who were childless or had just one child 
influenced individual women's decisions to limit family size, particularly in women of lower socioeconomic status in central and later phases of fertility. The researchers also analyzed naming patterns and found that the names of the main characters on these soap operas increased in popularity as women viewers selected them as names for their own children. A study conducted in India looked at the impact of exposing rural women to cable television, which showed programs set in urban environments where attitudes about women's roles were more progressive. The researchers found that the introduction of cable television improves the status of women in these rural communities. Women with access to cable television reported lower tolerance of domestic violence, less acceptance of prioritizing male children, um, and more autonomy and lower fertility. In addition, access to cable television is associated with increase in enrollment in schools. Perhaps the researchers thought because of increased women's status as decision makers in their own households. So now to close, let's look very closely at the film and television industry in the United States. For women directors in the United States, opportunities to direct narrative feature films and television are few and far between. In 2013, just two, two of the top 100 grossing films in this country were directed by women. The absence of women behind the camera inevitably influences the way women are portrayed on screen in American films, the stories that are told, and the perspective these stories are told from, as well as the range of roles available to actresses. This in turn limits what women and girls watching films are able to imagine and discover for themselves through the process of identifying with characters on screen and also what men are able to envision. We need to bring more quality to the filmmaking process uh, in order to illuminate for women and for men what Ralph Waldo Emerson called the attainable but unattained self. Thank you. My name is Chris Pax, and I'm president of Brown University. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I am a, a, an economist. I, I've worked over my career in health and development. And I think if we had to make one investment in women and girls in the next 10 years, my choice would be to make sure that we achieve parity in secondary schooling in the poorest countries of the world. Uh, so I want to just start with a little story. In 1991, uh, I was traveling with three male colleagues from uh, Nairobi to Kampala. We were driving overland. And we stopped to buy sodas somewhere along the way. And, I, and this young girl, she must have been about 12 years old, she sold me a soda. And she, we started talking. And she looked over at the car and said, which one of those three men is your husband? And I said, none of them. And she looked very shocked. And I said, no, 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 my husband's at home. And she said, OK, that's fine. And then she said, do you have children? And I said, yes, I have a two-year-old child. And she looked again startled and said, who's taking care of your child? And I said, my husband. And she got this gleam in her eye, and she said, that's the way to do it. <laughs> you know, it was just great. Sure. But you know, I, I think about that girl, because she's probably in her mid-30s now. And she was clearly not in school. She was probably 12 or 13 years old. And I know the data. I know that for girls who don't go to secondary school, they are more likely to die of maternal mortality. In some areas of, of Africa, girls who don't go to secondary school, women, have a 1 in 30 lifetime chance of dying. 
uh, associated with childbirth. I know that their children are much less likely to thrive, and I know that their incomes and their status in life is going to be much lower over the course of their lives. These are really grim statistics. Now, the good news here is that over the past 15 years, 10 to 15 years, across the world, we have made remarkable progress in raising the status, educational status of girls in primary schools. In most countries of the world, we are at or close to parity, gender parity, in primary school schooling, primary school attainment. And that's remarkable, that's wonderful. But the next frontier, the next frontier is secondary schooling, uh, which is something that will help women delay marriage, reduce childbearing, uh, improve their health, improve the health of their children and their families. Uh, now, this is a big goal, and it's not an easy one to achieve. But if you look at what's happening across the world, you can see some very uh, innovative and important uh, uh, solutions, uh, ways that we're helping to create um, programs to keep women and girls, keep girls in, in uh, school through high school. Uh, some of these are conditional cash transfer programs, scholarship programs where families are actually rewarded for keeping their girls in school. They may be rewarded for keeping their boys in school too, but some of the most successful programs have actually rewarded families more for girls' education than for boys' education. We see examples in Mexico, we see examples in Malawi, we see examples in Cambodia, and we know that these programs work. Uh, there are huge cultural barriers to keeping girls in school, uh, many other problems to contend with, but you know, again, I'm an economist. I think some of these financial mechanisms for increasing girls' schooling are very successful. I'm excited about them. I hope we see them expand through the coming decade. Thank you. Hi, my name is uh, Sheza Shahid, and I am the CEO and co-founder of the Malala Fund. I was just saying to Chris as she sat, uh, sat down, and we did not plan this, that I could not agree with her big idea more. Um, that's exactly what I was going to expand upon. Um, so I, I feel honored to, to build upon everything that, that you've said. But let me begin by telling you why this matters to me. Um, so Malala, my co-founder, is a 16-year-old child. Uh, last year, she was shot in the head on her way back from school. She was targeted by the Taliban because they wanted to ban female education. Malala almost died. She was in the hospital for a number of days, barely clinging on. But by a miracle that we are grateful for every day, she survived and is today one of the most powerful advocates for education in the world. I had known Malala for about six years. I had myself grown up in Pakistan and seen women's rights attacked every single day and at beginning, really, when girls became 12, 13, adolescents in secondary school. I eventually got a scholarship to go to Stanford and then worked in business in the Middle East at McKinsey. When Malala was shot, I left my job to build out the Malala Fund with her. What we believe is that there is no single more powerful intervention than investing in adolescent girls. If there is a single silver bullet in development, that is it. So a lot of the statistics Chris laid out very effectively for us. But imagine it this way. We see girls going to primary school more and more. And this is a huge achievement. But when you're a girl who turns 12 or 13, you're no longer 
in charge of your innocence. You are now an object, a woman, a sexual creature. That is when girls start getting married, raped, having children, and are trapped in a cycle of poverty. However, if we are able to keep girls in school, throughout secondary school, through their adolescence, we delay marriage, we delay childbirth. Children who are born to educated mothers are healthier, they go to school, and 90% of every dollar earned by a woman is reinvested into her community. Not to hate on the men, but it's 30 to 40% for men. So I feel validated that Chris's big idea was investing in the education and in the health of adolescent girls. That's my big idea, Malala and the Malala Fund's big idea. Thank you. I'm Pamela Reeves. I was a senior advisor in the State Department's Office of Global Women's Issues under Secretary Clinton. Now I advise the Gates Foundation on global women's issues. And I have 21 trillion big ideas. Because this might take some time. Because women control $21 trillion of consumer spending around the world. That's twice the GDP of China. And it's set to grow to $28 trillion by 2018. That's a lot of power. The power that women control with the private sector can be leveraged to create the kind of social, economic, and leadership advances we want to see for ourselves, for our sons and daughters, for our communities, and for our economies. And it's not just purchasing power. When women participate in all parts of the marketplace as valued workers, as skilled and connected leaders, as fully equipped entrepreneurs, as empowered consumers, we all prosper. I'm going to give you some quick numbers. If we could reduce the barriers to female labor force participation, we could increase the gross domestic product of the United States of America by 9% and of Japan by 16%. The rate of growth of women-owned businesses in the United States has been one and a half times the national average, employing 8 million people. And we reinvest, as Shiza just told us, um, more, than twice at, uh, more than twice the rate of men um, and we put our money back into educating future generations and solving whole community problems. And from the private sector side, we've got data that proves direct correlation between profitability and inclusion. So from the board level, where we've seen boards with the greatest number of women outperform those with the fewest number of women by over 60% in terms of return in invested capital and over 42% in return in sales. And we see these correlations up through the supply chain to the C-suite. It seems to me we have them by the bottom line. So how is it, with all this control, that we accept that we're the most economically vulnerable population, even here in the United States, where two-thirds of all minimum wage workers are women, where we make 77 cents to every dollar a white male makes, and that's 68 cents for an African-American woman, and that is 57 cents for a Latina woman, and then we put that money right back into the companies and the economies that shortchanged us. Women need to take control of the power that we have, not just to get the products and the services that we want, but to force the social impact that we want to see here and all over the world. And we need to recognize that companies aren't just powerful because they make and sell things. Companies have a unique and, and wonderful capacity, actually,
to promote and create the kind of seismic societal transformations that government and civil society cannot manage on our own. Even if we can envision it, the private sector can help us build it. Look, there are plenty of things we could do with our power. If we stopped spending for just one day, we would wreak havoc with the system. But I'm not suggesting that. <laughs> Instead, I see a natural and powerful partnership between women and the private sector that we need to harness. We need to raise our voice, and we need to shape the relationship and grow it responsibly. So when you are in your meetings, whether it's in the corporate boardroom or at your desk, say the word woman out loud often. It's an amazing thing when we remind people that we're an important part of the equation. So let's come back here in 2024 and report on the greatest success of the 21st century. That together with the private sector, we have harnessed 100% of our human talent. We have spread the responsibility and the impact of productivity evenly across our populations. And that we have created shared wealth and prosperity around the globe. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, I'm Mariana Huffington. I'm uh, the editor of the Huffington Post and the author of Thrive. And my um, idea is about the fact that it is time for us to launch the third women's revolution. The first women's revolution was giving us the vote. The second was giving us access to all jobs and the top of every field. And it's still, as everybody here has acknowledged, very much an incomplete revolution. But I don't believe we'll ever be able to complete it. I don't believe we'll ever get to 50 by 2050 until we launch and succeed in the third women's revolution, which is about women saying, we don't just want to be at the top of the world. We want to change the world. Because the way the world is designed at the moment is not working. It's not working for women. It's not working for men and it's not working for polar bears. <laughs> and, and for women to just say we want to be in the C-suite and we want to be in Congress without changing the way the system is designed by men, although none of the men present here, of course, <laughs> is not enough. Nothing is really going to change. And so women need to lead the way to reimagine, first of all, what success is. Because for me, it starts with that. At the moment, success in our culture, and we've actually exported it around the world, is defined as simply two metrics, money and power. And this is like trying to sit on a two-legged stool. Sooner or later, you fall off. We need the third metric. And the third metric consists of four pillars. The first is our well-being. Modern workplaces designed by men are fueled by burnout, sleep deprivation, and exhaustion. And women pay a much steeper price than that. All the latest science shows that women in stressful jobs, like everybody here and here, I'm sure, have a 40% greater risk of heart disease and a 60% greater risk of diabetes. So women do not, when women don't choose to climb up the ladder, it's often for survival reasons. The statistics are daunting. 
That's why when I spoke at your alma mater, Jane, at Smith, gave the commencement there, I urged all the women graduates to sleep their way to the top. <laughs> the, second, the second metric is wisdom. Look around. Look at all the leaders. How many of them are really wise? You know, a lot of them have high IQs, great degrees, but wisdom? That's a whole other thing. And wisdom cannot happen without time for reflection. Increasingly, politicians have designated thinkers and absolutely no time for reflection, and you see the results all around the world. And you see the lack of trust in our political system and all the consequences. Look at what happened with the financial collapse. Where were the CEOs? Burnt out, sleep deprived, not noticing the icebergs about to hit the Titanic? There was a really interesting op-ed by the woman CFO of Lehman Brothers who wrote about how she was completely burnt out. She had destroyed her marriage. She had destroyed her private life. What she didn't say is that that wasn't exactly good for Lehman Brothers either. <laughs> Clinton, President Clinton himself, said that the most important mistakes I made, I made when I was tired. He did not specify what mistakes. <laughs> But we need, to, we need to stop walking around in the C-suites congratulating people for working 24-7. We need to stop using the language of war. We are killing it. We are crushing it. The other day, I heard our head of sales say, we need just one throat to choke. <laughs> he meant just one person accountable. But do we really need to use that language? Women need to change that. The third is just wonder. You know, here we are in Aspen. But the way we've designed our work is so driven by constantly being on our devices, constantly multitasking, we miss everything. We miss the beauty and the wonder around us. And that makes us lesser human beings, because you know what? We are more than our jobs, however magnificent our jobs may be. The fourth metric, the fourth metric is giving, because giving absolutely completes everything. So let me just end by saying that if you remember the last time you were at a memorial, eulogies have nothing to do with our resumes. Have you ever heard somebody being eulogized by saying, you know, George was amazing. <laughs> he increased market share by one third. <laughs> so let's remember that and launch the third women's revolution. That was a panel of women leaders, including Monique Villa, Sally Blount, Pamela Reeves, Christina Paxson, Lori Gottlieb, Ariana Huffington, Sherilyn Eiffel, Jane Harmon, Joanna Lipper, and Shiza Shahid. The women were on stage during the 2014 Aspen Ideas Festival. Discover more about Aspen Ideas at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas to Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. <laughs>